So earlier this spring, when we were all stuck in our homes, isolated from one another, I found myself really missing conversation with my colleagues. And this was never more obvious to me than when we were once again faced with racial injustice upon the death of Mr. George Floyd. I just desperately needed my people to process this with, to, to talk about what I was seeing and reading and thinking and feeling and figure out what my role was in all of this. And then one day I got a text that I was hoping for, but it came from a really unexpected source. My future boss, Assistant Academic Dean Chad Ragsdale. So his initial text to me was essentially saying, um, you know, I, um, I saw the social media post and um, I, I, I have some problems with it and I want to discuss it with you. What do you think? And so we went back and forth and we talked about all sorts of things like um, we talked about the rioting and we talked about the looting and we talked about the burning of the Minneapolis precinct and we talked about uh, systemic racism and we talked about uh, the bootstrap philosophy and just all these different things, oh, days and days of this. And it was so good for my soul. And it's not because we were solving all of the world's issues. I know we weren't, far from it. We didn't even agree on everything. But the conversation was good. It was healthy. We were, we were sorting out fact from fiction. We were sorting out history from experience. And it was a start. Well, a couple days later, I got another text from Chad, and this time it was just pure encouragement. Uh, he just said, you know what, we're in a weird time, and I bet there's a lot of people that are leaning on you, and they're, they're asking questions, and they're looking for encouragement, and so I just wanted you to know that I'm praying for you today, and I just wanted you to know that you're loved, and I got to tell you, man, that warmed my heart. I thought, man, Chad must be getting soft in his old age, you know, <laughs> but it's okay, I'll take it. And then a couple days later, another text. This time it was to both me and Michael. And he said, hey, I wrote a blog post about some of the stuff we've been talking about, but I'm not gonna post it until you look at it first. I want your feedback. So I emailed it over, take a look, let me know what you think. So Michael and I both open up our email and he had the post, but I didn't. And so Michael quickly texted Chad and he said, hey, did, did you wanna send that to Beth separately or do you want her to send her thoughts through me? To which Chad replied, "What?" Well, I didn't think about Beth responding, but she's welcome to if she wants. It's weird. So Michael said, well, you texted her about it too, to which Chad responded, I don't even have Beth's number. So Michael texted him again and he said, no man, you've been talking to her about this stuff for like the last week and a half. What do you mean you don't have her number? And he quickly types out my 10 digits and sends it off. And this was the response we got. I have that number in my phone as Matthew McBirth. All of a sudden, so much of our conversation made so much more sense. It was all just a mistake. All of the emotion and the sorting out of politics and the prayers for a fresh wind from the spirit and the love, it wasn't for me. Now, I tell you this story for two reasons. One, because it's always a good idea to have just a little bit of dirt on your boss. Okay. But that's not the, I mean, that's not the primary reason. No, I tell you this story because as soon as I saw that final text message, I recognized a very dark feeling rising up inside of me.
And I'll be honest with you, it was a feeling that I was not unfamiliar with. In fact, it's a sin that I've struggled with since childhood. You know, we've all been worried about this pandemic of epic proportions for the last eight months, but let me tell you something. Jealousy? Now that is a sickness that has been eating us alive since the beginning of time. I mean, think about it. Cain and Abel fighting for God's blessing, to Jacob and Esau vying for the family birthright, to Leah desperately desiring the love that Jacob poured out on her sister Rachel, and Rachel desperately desiring the sons that Jacob shared with her sister Leah. <laughs> That'll mess you up. Then we got James and John over here, the aptly called the Sons of Thunder, both arguing over their position next to Jesus' side. And let's not forget about the Israelites. Oh yeah, the Israelites. Wandering in the desert, receiving their law. And there we have it right there in Deuteronomy chapter five, our 10th and final commandment, you shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now I'm guessing it's probably been a minute since you were really longing for that person's goat next door. But I don't have a hard time believing that the curse of coveting has made victims of us all. But I also know that I am not probably going to gain a hearing with you if I don't fess up first. So let me just crack the door on 40-year-old mom life. So I start my day every day at 5 a.m. And I don't start my day at 5 a.m. so that I can get a quick workout in before class. And I don't even start my day at 5 a.m. so that I can begin with the Word of God in one hand and a piping hot cup of coffee in the other. No, I start my day that early because this takes work. And the thing is, is that my classroom is filled with tight-skinned, trendy, cutesy-poo 20-year-old girls who walk in every day like, I woke up like this. <laughs> and you know, that's great. But that is not my reality. That was two very long decades ago. <laughs> no, these days I wake up more like this. Yeah, that's true every day because I have kids and they wake me up at night. So you're hashtag blessed? Well, that's great. This is hashtag truth, okay? So then I finish my day, I teach my classes, I go to 117 meetings, and then it's time to go and pick my kids up from school. And sometimes we run a soccer practice, maybe a volleyball practice, we trudge through homework, including fifth grade math, there's something to be jealous about. And then it's time for dinner. Now most of the time I have a plan in place, but sometimes I think I'm just gonna jump on social media and see what everybody else is making, because that's a good idea. And inevitably I see pictures like this one. Hashtag farm to table. Hashtag healthy family, happy family. Hashtag all natural. <laughs> and I think to myself, okay, I'm gonna see your pesticide-free asparagus. I'm gonna raise you a chicken nugget. <laughs> Hashtag food. <laughs> Hashtag they ain't starving. Then I come to the end of my day. And uh, I get the kids put down, I've got the backpacks packed, outfits are laid out for the next day, I have smelled the milk to make sure it's not sour because I'm a good mom. And then I think to myself, I'm going to check my email one more time. And much to my dismay, I see a question that a student sent hours ago, and so I quickly type off a response and an apology, and no sooner do I hit send than ding, they respond. 
Oh, hey, Mrs. DeFazio, it's okay. No problem. I decided to take my girlfriend out for ice cream. We had such a good time. We're just now on our way back to campus to start homework. It is 9.15, young man. <laughs> my contacts are out. My mouth guard is in. I am dressed in oversized flannel pajamas, and my boyfriend is already snoring. <laughs> Where do you people get the energy? <laughs> I'm not kidding, y'all might as well just start calling us me, mom, pop, pop. Because I turned 40 and five days later I was 85 and I am still trying to figure out what happened. But this is my life. And these are just a few of the ways in which envy catches me by surprise every single day, all in a day's work. But for those of you who are not middle-aged females in the room, I see you too. And I do know the ways in which coveting has cursed you. Remember, I've been battling the green-eyed monster for almost twice as long as some of you have been alive. So yeah, so for maybe some of you, you have been jealous of your friends' functional families. I've been there. Maybe you have been envious of those who lived in a different part of town, or you wished that you had a house you weren't embarrassed to invite people to. I resonate with that. Maybe for you, you've been jealous of your friend's cars in high school, or maybe you're jealous of your friend's cars right now. My first car was a retired mail truck that I bought for a hundred bucks at an auction, so. Maybe for you, you have been jealous for better clothes or nicer shoes, or maybe for you it was straighter teeth or cuter hair or a smaller waistline or bigger biceps. Maybe you've been envious for the captain position on the team, or maybe you just wanted to be on the team at all. Maybe you've desired to have a part in the play rather than to be the one painting sets. Maybe you have been envious over having a significant other or a significant other who's nicer to you. Maybe you've been jealous of his grades or her personality or their scholarships. Maybe right now you're sitting there envious of the roommates who actually get along or the students who don't have any missing assignments or that impromptu movie night that you weren't invited to or the students who already know what they're doing next summer. Maybe you're jealous of those students who get to go home on the weekends. Or maybe your envy looks like having a home worth going to. And maybe for others of you, you're just sitting there thinking to yourself, all of these little insignificant secret desires are not that big a deal. Like, why are we getting worked up over coveting? And I know we look at the sin, I mean, the, the, the Ten Commandments list, and it is really easy to ignore this one. I mean, maybe you're thinking, well, it's not like murder or stealing or adultery. Those are huge sins. I'm not doing any of those things. Well, good, I hope you're not. But then you do realize you're making my point. Because when it comes to coveting, there's something here for everyone. Coveting is real, and it's really easy to fall into, which means it really is a problem. Now, if I were to say uh, Galatians chapter five, most of you would probably immediately think of the fruit of the Spirit, right? But here's the thing, before Paul actually gets to the fruit, he lays out what a life looks like without love and joy and peace and patience and so forth. And here's what he says, starting in verse 19. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Now, I bet you think you know what I'm going to say next. Oh, hey, look, there it is, jealousy, placed right in the midst of a bunch of abhorrent sins like debauchery, (laughs) whatever that is, and sexual immorality. And you know what? That is a very good observation of the text. Excellent work, my little hermeneutical Padawans. (laughs) But that's actually not what I was going to say. What I was really going to say is that Paul's audience must have been a little bit like my audience. See, he knew that they would look at jealousy and think, well, that's no big deal, and they'd skip right by it. And so to point out just what a serious problem this is, he put it in there twice. And here's what we know. We know that jealousy is a major issue to Paul because Galatians isn't the only place where he sticks it in a major sin list. In Romans chapter 1, he says, those who have exchanged the truth about God for a lie, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. In Romans 13, he urges, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. In 1 Timothy, the false teachers had an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and of course, we know 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, and it's kind, but it does not envy. And guess what? It's not just Paul. James, the brother of Jesus, warns us that where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. And the disciple Peter says that if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you have to rid yourself of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. So hopefully, we can all agree that coveting is, in fact, a curse. But the question remains, What is it that makes it oh so terrible? Well, I think part of it is is because when we envy, we take our precious Shema that we have been quoting and memorizing together as a community this semester, and we flip it on its head. Or better yet, we take Jesus' words from Matthew 22, and we turn those upside down. In Matthew 22, Jesus is being tricked He's trying to, or they're trying to trick him by these teachers of the law. And they ask him the question, what's the greatest commandment? And they're probably thinking to themselves, man, with the big 10 out there and all these other Levitical laws, how in the world is he possibly going to choose just one? But Jesus doesn't even miss a beat. He goes straight to Deuteronomy chapter six. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second one, it's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says all of the other laws and the prophets, they hang on these two commandments. But here's what happens when we give in to our envy. Instead of revering God and loving people, we resent people and we distrust God. There's the problem. So what's the solution? Well, I think the curse of coveting is cured through contentment. So open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Now, for all of our underclassmen in the room, I hope that you have picked up on the fact that we have utter disdain for anyone who misinterprets Philippians 4.13. Are we clear on that? We know that we all shake our head and we scoff when we see that on a bumper sticker, right? 
We're good? Okay, perfect. Just making sure. Now, for those of you that have not yet picked up on the actual correct context for Philippians 4.13, today's your lucky day. Comfort for your theological dissonance is coming your way. So, here's what Paul says, starting in verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. No, 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 for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. So here's what's going on here. Paul is thanking the Philippian believers for their generosity and their support of his ministry. There have been some others who have tried to stir up trouble for him, but the recipients of this letter have done nothing but build the apostle up both through friendship and finances. So he's taking a moment to say thanks. But he also wants to be very clear here. His joy is not manifest only when his needs are met. Now, on the contrary, Paul's fine. Even though he's been beaten, cast out, destitute, and he's currently sitting in prison. I like how Frank Thielman puts it in his commentary. He says, to Paul, physical deprivation is not an unmitigated disaster, nor is physical comfort the sign of success. No, contentment supersedes all circumstances. And there's a couple characteristics of contentment that Paul points out here. I don't want us to miss these. One, we need to see that this is learned. Paul is telling us that this doesn't come naturally to us. It's actually part of our humanness to live just the opposite of content, actually. So to become unconcerned with either possessions or positions, we're going to have to put in the work. We need to recognize that muscles are grown from a workout. And this is true just as much about spiritual things as it is physical. We are going to have to work hard to be content. But here's the second characteristic. Paul wants us to understand that the, the resources for this attribute, he does not find in and of himself. No, instead he says it's in the Lord that he finds the strength to face all things. So it's kind of like this. Coveting causes us to say, the grass is always greener on the other side. But fighting for contentment enables us to say, no, the grass is always greener where you choose to water it. Hey, if, if Dougie can quote Avril, I can quote the Beeb, okay? And this is true, this is true. We have to work for it, we have to go through the process, but it's not the whole truth. Paul says it's not enough to just say no to sin. It's not enough just to say no to our covetous temptations. We also have to say yes to the Spirit of God who lives inside us. And when we spend time in His Word, serving His people, living a life of worship to Him, then we will develop the strength to fight the very things that are trying to hone envy in our hearts. The curse of coveting is cured through contentment. And contentment takes commitment, 
and a whole lot of Christ. So this is helpful, this is good, but I wanna get practical with you. I wanna offer you two pathways that you can start walking today to begin cultivating contentment in your hearts. Because here's the thing, if we're gonna flip those two commandments back the right way around where they belong, then we need to celebrate our brothers and sisters and we need to lean into the sovereignty of God. So our son Carson has this weird obsession with measuring things. It's really odd. Uh, I noticed it when he was about three years old, but he just loves to measure. So a couple years ago, we actually bought him a tape measure for Christmas and he was elated. He uses it all the time. In fact, just a couple weekends ago, we were woken up way too early because Carson was crawling into our bed and it wasn't for Saturday morning snuggles. It was because he needed to measure our headboard because that was on his agenda for the day. Now, I will tell you, when this all first started, it was very cute and it was funny, but after a while, guys, I was like, enough already. <laughs> it's time for this childish behavior to go. But it did get me thinking about my own obsession with measurement. But see, I don't measure things, I measure people. There have been a lot of seasons in my life where I am unable to walk into a room without busting out my beauty barometer. And I convince myself that if I don't bring my weight and wittiness, people are going to pass me by. And if I don't bring pounds of productivity, what good am I? And I'll be honest with you, I'm still intimidated by people's unending capacity for creativity. And I bet I'm not the only one. Because for some reason, we have got it in our heads that to be acceptable, we have to be exceptional. But it's time for this childish behavior to go. We have got to get rid of our ridiculous rulers and lean into the immeasurable grace of God. And how do we do that? We stop walking into every room just looking to size up the competition, but instead we walk into every room and we find someone to celebrate. Congratulate her on the job offer. Congratulate him on the new truck. Congratulate them on their recent engagement. And listen, I know that this may feel forced or even false at times. I've struggled with that too, especially in our age of authenticity. But guys, it's just like any other spiritual discipline. When we are fighting for contentment, it's hard at first, but the more you do this, I promise you, it will become more natural. And also guys, I'm gonna be real. If you really want authentic relationships, then you are gonna have to do something about your envy. Beth Moore says that jealousy is a notorious misperceiver, and she's right. This is a deep and ugly emotion that almost always creates scenarios between people that aren't actually there. It breeds resentment. So if all you ever do is rank the room, you will not have real relationships. If all you ever do is rank the room, you will not find contentment. And if you do not find contentment, you will not be able to worship in freedom and in truth. John 2 reminds us, don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from Him. 
The world and all it's wanting, 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 it's on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. So celebrate your brothers and sisters with as much genuine gladness as you can muster and lean into the sovereignty of God. Now, I will be the first to admit that I have trust issues. But when I discover that I don't trust someone, I like to call that the spirit of discernment um, because then it's their problem and not mine. But the question haunts me, what do we do when we don't trust God? Recently, one of the girls in my Bibcom class was sharing an illustration about some sheep who had trust issues with their shepherd. These sheep had devoured everything in their pen. There was literally nothing left for them. And so they had developed this habit of lining up against the fence row and looking out to the meadow beyond, desiring what they could not have. But their shepherd knew their needs. And so he came and he opened up the gate on the other side. I mean, he opened it wide open so that they could go out and find refreshment and everything that they needed and more. But the dang sheep wouldn't turn around. They were fixated on what they thought was the only answer, even though their shepherd had their well-being firmly in hand. Anyone else feel a little sheepish? (laughs) You know, we claim that we trust God with our salvation. We trust God with the universe. We trust God as our living hope. And that's good. I hope that's true. But what does it mean then when we don't trust God with our finances, our relationships, our resources, our government. The thing about leaning into the sovereignty of God is that we don't get to choose between ultimate and specific trust. If you trust him, you trust him. And why wouldn't we, church? He dresses the lilies of the field every morning. How much more so is he going to care for your needs? He feeds every bird every day. How much more so is he going to pour out blessings on you? He tells us to ask and to seek because he wants to give us good things. So if you're not seeing that, is it possible that you're looking in the wrong direction? This is why every single semester I task my Essentials of Spiritual Formation class with keeping a joy journal. And in this joy journal, every single record is supposed to be about a gift, a blessing that they were given from the Father, and the only reason they noticed it is because they were looking for it. See, it's real easy to pray prayers like, hey God, thanks for everything you've ever given me. But what I've learned is that to truly trust in the sovereignty of God, your prayers have to be specific. What I've learned is that I have to count my blessings, literally name them one by one. So yes, I journal them, I make lists of them, I have conversations about them, we sing about them. In fact, in our house, anytime one of us starts to mistake annoyances for agonies, one of us will typically quote from one of our favorite prophets, Kanye West. And we will just gently remind each other We have everything we need because it's true. And guys, I'm gonna be real with you. When you start counting your blessings, it's very humbling and it's a little bit embarrassing because you start to realize I have no reason to be envious. I have been blessed beyond measure 
Psalm 13, five and six says, I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. And speaking of singing, <laughs> I don't know about in your homes, but when The Greatest Showman came out, we had that soundtrack on repeat in ours. We all of us had our favorite song that we liked to play, and we would oftentimes ask other people what their favorite song was. And I was always surprised at how many people chose the song, Never Enough. Sure, the melody is beautiful, and yes, she sings like an angel, no question, but the words are devastating. All the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough. They'll never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. My hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. It'll never be enough. That's horrifying. Oh, but the music, the music, it entices you, it mesmerizes you, it draws you in, and it deceives you. And isn't that the truth behind the 10th commandment? It doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. I mean, why would we not want good things? How are we supposed to not think about being successful? Envy doesn't actually hurt anybody until it does. Well, make no mistake, the curse of coveting will fracture your relationships and it will leave you far from the God you love. But the cure for coveting is contentment. The cure is to sing a new song, a song that reminds us there is nothing, and I mean nothing, better than Him. A song that reminds us he is the only one who can turn graves into gardens. And would you take it from a recovering coveter? I promise you, the grass doesn't get any greener than that.